This morning's passage is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Matthew 7, there's a one theme that permeates the entire chapter, and it's judgment. Um, it's probably why preachers don't preach on much. <laughs> uh, it talks about us judging one another. It talks about God judging the church. It talks about God judging the unredeemed. It is thematically judgment-related. And it is the perfect place for Christ to end the sermon. You say, well, why? If we go back more than a few weeks, we remember Christ starting us off in the Beatitudes. And he gave us the character of the blessed man or blessed woman who's living in accordance with the kingdom. And then we have this incredible calling to be salt and light. He says, go out. And illuminate and purify a putrefied dark world. And then he reveals to us how this life will be lived in regards to the law. How we will live as kingdom dwellers according to God's holy law. And then he, then he goes into our acts of righteousness. And he says, look at, look at your giving and look at your fasting and look at your praying. And look at the motive of your heart in each. And then as we saw in the last couple weeks, he digs even deeper. And he says, I, I want to know what your treasure is and I want to know what you've placed your faith in. And this life that's lifted up, this kingdom life that we're called to live in Christ is extraordinary and overwhelming at the same time because this is the expectation of a holy God. And on that day when he comes again in all of his glory and he judges the living and the dead, believer and unbeliever will stand before him and give an account. And those who do not know him we know are condemned. They're condemned to the lake of fire. But those who do know him will be judged according to their works whether or not they've lived this kingdom life. And so Christ brings the whole sermon and all those listening into God's throne room. And that's how he ends it. It, in, it ends in the throne room, before the holy God, before the judgment seat. And what he's saying is these are not nice little teachings that I want you to hear and go, oh, yeah, that's the way I should be. He's saying these are eternal truths about an eternal kingdom. And one day you're going to be brought into the presence of that king. And he's going to say, so let's see how you did. Let's see how you did. I would love to tell you that this descent from Matthew 6 is going to be a nice, easy descent with very little turbulence. But it is nothing of the sort. Um, for two reasons. One, when you talk about judgment, it's just hard. Uh, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it with others. Um, it, uh, the hope is that as, you, as you, we go through chapter 7, there'll be conviction. You'll be asking yourself. You'll be testing yourself. You'll be evaluating yourself. Am I living by the power of the Holy Spirit in the power of the gospel of grace like this? Am I? Am I? Yes or no? And don't fool around with yourself on this. So there'll be hopefully conviction. That makes it hard. But there's also radical confusion. And, and not just all of chapter 7, but this particular verse. In fact, two words in verse 1 of Matthew 7, judge not. The NIV says, do not judge. It's just made a mess of things. And I'm, 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 not, I'm not critiquing our Lord's sermon or the word itself. I'm critiquing us and our inability to read it and understand it correctly. And we have, we've messed this one up. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 where Jesus says judge not has left an entire generation in this country possibly two theologically confused and living heretically. You see those are extreme statements. They're absolutely true and I'm going to show you. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 do not judge is so epidemic in its confusion that if I had to list the top ten heresies that permeates the church today that I've had to deal with, it would come directly from this verse. Where people have said to me, and maybe said to you, doesn't the Bible say do not judge? Didn't Christ himself say do not judge? Therefore I will not judge. 
And then everybody gets sideways. So this morning, I would ask for your permission, but it's too late. So by, with, by God's grace, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first verse, just the first part of the first verse. That was point number one in the original sermon. I realized when I hit page 20, it was going to be a long sermon. So I said, let's just make this a sermon. Next week, we'll look at the implications and the consequences of this teaching. We'll deal with the, all five verses. But this morning, I want to look at judge not. I want to look at do not judge. I want to look at what it means and what it doesn't mean and, and how we move that into the gospel itself. And I want to look at it in four ways. One, our hellish tolerance, and I mean that literally. Two, our biblical judgment. Three, a condemning spirit. And four, biblical grace. Hellish tolerance, biblical judgment, condemning spirit, and biblical grace. Let's look at the first one. Our hellish tolerance. Every single truth in sacred scripture, to one degree or another, has been taken by mankind and twisted, right? We've taken it, we've moved it, we've twisted it, we've made it an extreme in some capacity, and then we've applied it, and the result has been a mess. It's messed up God's good creation. This is one of those truths. The, the, the hardest part is it's made a mess within the church, God's teaching, Jesus' teaching on judge not has made its way into the church and made a mess amongst God's people. I get it when scripture is misinterpreted by the world, right? The natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. But when it gets into the church and makes a mess, that's grievous. This passage, this verse, these two words, in fact, the word krino, which is judge, it's, the definition is so simple, but it's the reason that it's caused so much confusion. It literally means to make a distinction, and that's it. Just to distinguish between two things. But the implication can mean to try someone, i.e. in a court of law, to punish someone, to condemn someone. And so it has a very broad implication that, if not understood in the context of this passage, will uh, leave us in, in some trouble. I don't know... And I could be wrong, but I don't know of any other time in human history where a teaching on this, clarity on this, is more important than today in a a culture that in many ways has lost its mind when it comes to discerning and judgment. You know, we use terms like absolute tolerance, universal appeasement. My brother reminded me on Wednesday, solidarity. And doing anything to keep the peace. When I was in high school, it was, I'm okay, you're okay, don't judge me, I won't judge you, can't we all just get along, world view. Right? Now these are little cute little slogans you see, but this is a, permeate, a, a view that's permeated the Western culture. And it's become so dominant for the last several decades that it's in every Every area of life, whether it be politics or education, um, sociology, economics, and in the church, this don't judge in any capacity, at any time, anybody, for any reason. Don't judge. Judge not. Becoming judgment-free. And if you think about the most successful people in our culture today, those who have risen to the top, what have they done? They've become centrist. They've They've placed themselves in the middle. And they've done it strategically, right? If you want to rise in a culture of centrist, then you become centrist. You become in the middle. You don't take positions of truth and falsehood, of light and darkness. You take the middle of the road. I mean, there's no greater place than in politics to see this, right? How do people get to higher offices? Well, they, they expand their base. How do you expand your base? How do you expand your base? How do you get liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans to come together? Why? Well, you appeal to both. You stand for nothing, and you agree with everything. And guess what? More people vote for you. Shocking. Even President Obama, a few months ago, after declaring boldly in his campaigning and for most the first term of office that he believed that marriage was between a man and a woman, even a few months ago, he came out and he said this, and I'll quote. He said, My personal philosophy is that as a Christian... There's a ton of stuff with that, but we won't touch it. My personal philosophy is that as a Christian, I see no contradiction with embracing same-sex couples as part of our community. He said, that's my Christian ethos. Who am I to judge? 
Boom. Matthew 7.1. Drag it in. That same week, Pastor Frederick Haynes III, a very popular pastor, came out affirming President Obama's statement by quoting Matthew 7, chapter 1. Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge. And his entire sermon was based upon those two words and what President Obama said. In fact, if you take a stand for truth, if you take a stand for righteousness, if you make distinctions, if you make judgments in this culture, you're labeled. And you're labeled things like being, you're intolerant, you're difficult, you're narrow-minded, you're an elitist, you are judgmental. And if you don't embrace this judgment-free worldview, especially if you're in the corporate life, after a while you'll be demoted or, or cast out. You don't take stand. If you don't tow the company line, which is the contemporary cultural worldview, then you won't be sticking around very long. Now, I, I get this. I mean, in light of the fallen culture, this makes sense, right? In fact, it makes complete sense. When we have truth, and we have, therefore, judgment, and we have right and wrong, it's one of two places. You either run to the cross and and ask for mercy, or you run away from it. And if you run away from it, then what better way to deal with judgment and judgmentalism and you potentially being judged than just to remove it altogether. I mean, that's a great plan. Let's remove judgment altogether. Let's create a worldview where we talk about being judgment-free and absolutely tolerant and have universal appeasement for all people in all places at all times in all circumstances in all situations for all things. That's great. I mean, that's good. The enemy was good at this one. Taking from the very mouth of Christ... A teaching like judge not and perverting it. I mean, when you have non-believers quoting scripture, something's off, right? When they'll say, oh, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge? And you go, yes, then why are you judging me? Mm, I hope you got an answer for it. I know I use that as a pagan against my Christian friends. So many people outside the church and inside the church have taken this these two words, and turn them upside down. Believing that if you are a Christian, that you will not judge. That you'll be a judgment-free person. And I've seen this in the church, where we take on a, uh, a placid, uh, a phrase I used to love that my, a friend of my father, milk toast like approach toward life, where it's just kind of like, eh, I'm not going to judge anything. I'm just going to kind of muddle my way through. Judgment-free. Several years ago, I was having lunch with a group of pastors. And at this lunch, there was... At my table, I should say. I don't know if it was... But at my table of seven or eight pastors, they were all talking about Rick Warren's new book, The Purpose-Driven Church. He had written The Purpose-Driven Life, and now he came out with The Purpose-Driven Church. And several of the pastors that were at this table were talking about how they were taking their churches through this series. And it was a series designed for churches to teach on and preach on. I don't remember how many weeks it was, so many weeks. And the dialogue continued, and I sat there eating my lunch, and someone said, you know, Pastor Keith, are you going to take your church through this? And I said, no. And they said, why? And I said, I'll give you two reasons. I have several, but one... I do not agree with Rick Warren's seeker-sensitive approach toward the gospel. And two, his presentation of the gospel, I do not believe is biblical. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I've read the book, and if you go back to day seven, which was on like page 18, it gives his gospel presentation. And in that gospel presentation, there was no concept of God being holy, no concept of sin, no concept of hell, or the need to repent for it, or be born again. It was, God has a wonderful plan for your life, not the gospel of grace. I said it in a very non-confrontational way. Um, I didn't mince words. I wanted to keep my words to a few. The dialogue stopped. And it was deafening at the table. Um, And I can tell you why. I mean, in part, they thought, well, I'm judging Rick Warren. I'm judging his book. And therefore, by implication, I'm judging them. Right? But also, in part, we don't do that in our culture. It was a pastoral luncheon. Be nice. You're a pastor. Don't judge. You're a pastor. And so we're all supposed to sit there and just kind of, you know, I didn't bring the topic up. Why did you bring it up? Let's just be nice. 
And so after a long, awkward pause, someone said, dessert anybody? And the whole table got up, and everybody went and got dessert. And I looked at uh, someone sitting next to me, and I went, that was awkward. What happened? What did I do? I stepped into a, a cultural uh, uh, trap, right? Where if, if, I am, if I'm truly a godly man, and if I'm a Christian, and if I'm a pastor, then I better not judge. Jesus said, do not judge. You're a pastor. Do not judge. You need to go confess your sins and stop judging. When Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged, he was not teaching his followers, his pastors, his disciples to not think and not discern between right and wrong. He was not telling us not to judge on doctrine or behavior. He was not telling us any of these things. He was not telling us to put on rose-colored glasses and be middle-of-the-road, hellishly tolerant people. And yet... Brothers and sisters, many in the church have become hellishly tolerant people. On this single verse, do not judge. D.A. Carson said, Do not judge certainly does not command the sons of God, the disciples of Jesus, to be amorphous, undiscerning blobs who never under any circumstance whatsoever hold any opinions about right and wrong. That's not what Jesus is teaching. So if you've read that, even to a degree in that capacity, I want you this moment to eradicate it from your mind. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't be discerning. He's not saying don't judge between right and wrong. He's not saying don't look at people who are acting in manners that are ungodly and not adjudicate things. He's not saying any of those things. Now you're sitting there saying, all right, I heard you, but I'm also reading this. You printed it up for me. It says, judge not. How do you know that's not what he meant? How do you know D.A. Carson's right? What's your grounds for this? Point number two, biblical judgment. You ready? Are you still with me? Who's with me? Thank you. All right. You know, you can throw out an amen or just, okay, okay, I got you. That's, I'm okay with that, right? Okay with that. I am. Um, I know. That that's not what he's saying. I don't think. I'm absolutely certain. So there's no gray area on this. Jesus Christ is teaching against a contemporary heresy of judge not in this very passage. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. One, it's absolutely impossible to live a judgment-free life. It's impossible. Just try it. Try it for a day. It's impossible. You're adjudicating all day on lots of things, including people. It's a very dangerous thing to be judgment-free, besides being impossible. But the second reason, most importantly, the Bible tells us to judge. The Bible t- tells us to judge. There are so many passages. I, this, <laughs> so, one of the difficult things for a pastor is going, okay, which passages do you use? If you have 20 that you, you reference, and they all work, which ones do you pick? I decided to keep the, the references local. To show you how Jesus is not teaching this. In the same chapter, in less than 15 verses, Jesus teaches that he's not telling us to be judgment free. In fact, you only have to go to verse 6, first of all. Look at verse 6. If you have your Bibles open, I didn't print it there for you. I'm sorry, I ran out of space. If you have your Bibles, so Jesus says in verse 1, Judge not. And then in verse 6 he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, i got a question for you. How do you identify someone as a dog or a pig without rendering a judgment? How do you do it? You can't. We'll talk about the dogs and the pigs in two weeks, okay? Study on your own until then. But you have to make an adjudication of some sort. I'm dealing with a dog. I'm dealing with a pig. I'm not going to throw my pearls before them. And therefore, you judge. You must. You say, well, that's not sufficient. Go to verse 15 if you have your Bibles open. I'm going to stay within 15 verses and we'll see. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus is saying, not only must you be wise in your judgments of those who are wolves in sheep's clothing, he says, but I'll tell you how you do it. You judge them what? You judge them by the fruit. Take a look. See how they talk. See how they act. See how they engage. You'll know them. And then he's saying, and you better judge, or you're going to get devoured. You better have some discernment of right and wrong, and people... 
years ago, and I literally mean that years ago, when I was working for IBM in San Francisco, I did my initial training for the first six months in Oakland. Lovely place. And then I would take the Muni underneath the bay in the evening to come home. Well, one night, the training went late. I don't remember why, but I took the Muni home, and I ended up, you know, somewhere on Market Street. And my bus, which I usually took up to North Beach, was no longer running. This was late. So I'm probably 11, 30, 12 o'clock. I'm like, hmm, okay. So I waited a little bit for a taxi. No taxi around. I thought, you know what? It's a beautiful night. It was the city. It was the fall. It was gorgeous out. I thought, it's a couple miles. I'll, I'll walk it. No big deal, right? So here I am on Market Street, and I got to get up to North Beach. And there's some areas that you walk through that aren't the nicest areas in the world. And I'm dressed in my IBM uniform, okay? So I have my full suit on. I have my white pinpoint Oxford shirt, perfectly pressed. I have my black wingtips, and I'm carrying my briefcase. Beautiful, right? I mean, just what you want to do when you're walking through bad neighborhoods in San Francisco at midnight. So I, I start my walk, and as I'm making my way home, I encounter a group of young men. Now, I'm going to give you two descriptions of these young men. I'll give you a group A and I'll give you a group B. Okay, Group A, young men that I encounter. One's real, one's hypothetical. Group A, a group of young men that are dressed in sports coats like mine and sweater vests. All right, And they all are carrying their Bibles and they're singing hymns. That's group A. Stop laughing. Okay, That's real. That could be real. Maybe. And then group B, a group of young men dressed in attire that would be similar to that of the Hell's Angels. Uh, and they don't have a Bible in their hand. They have a bottle of alcohol in their hand. And I imagine there were weapons involved. And as I approached, there were catcalls and there were obscenities. Now I ask you, judgment-free person who's a believer in Jesus Christ, which of those two groups would you be more concerned about? Which one would it be? Hmm? In that moment, are you going to walk up going, I'm judgment-free. Christ said, do not judge. I'm not going to discern their motives or that I'm not going to make that decision. I'm not going to. I'm going to see them as, as we'd say, children of God. Really? Your heart rate and the pace of your gait give you away already. Because you're walking a lot faster than you did 10 minutes before you saw them. And your heart's coming through your throat if it is group B. Why? You judged. Why? You better have made that judgment. You, I came upon group B. And by God's grace, I passed by safely. There was no harm done. But I'm going to tell you, I'd have much rather had seen group A. And I'd have maybe stayed and just sang a few hymns with them, right? We discern. We make judgments. We're called to make judgments like this all the time. The individual, the individual believer is commanded by the Bible to judge in this capacity. I'll go one step further. The church is commanded to judge like this. The entire church, collectively. You say, what are you talking about? Church discipline, which used to be a defining characteristic of the post-Reformation church, is essentially non-existent today where the church collectively recognizes sin and deals with the sin in a biblical manner, largely not practiced in the contemporary American church, in part because of Matthew 7, verse 1, where it says, do not judge, and in part because we want to please man more than we want to please God. I mean, when you start talking about discipline in the church, people get all bent out of shape. So we're just going to keep the peace, take a middle of the road, not talk about sin or judgment or discernment or discipline. We're just going to take this path. There are several passages that support this as well, but I'm going to give you the two biggies, and most of you know them already. Matthew chapter 18, you know this. If you've been in the church any period of time, you know that a very famous passage where Jesus talks about us dealing with sin that's made its way into the church. I'll read it to you, beginning at verse 15, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, you are bringing judgment, right? There's adjudication in this process. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Where do we do that? In a court of law. He continues, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Did you hear the command? It says, if sin is into your church, your church better be making some sound biblical judgments on this. 
And they better do it in such a way that that person is made aware of the sin, adjudicated the sin. And if they don't repent and they don't turn, then you must treat them how? As a pagan or tax collector, essentially as they're unsaved. That's how you treat them. But this is church. This is where we're supposed to all be nice and love each other and laugh and smile and not talk about things like, this is church. This is biblical church. I'll give you one even more pointed, and that's 1 Corinthians 5. Paul makes Matthew 18 look simple. Paul had heard that the church in Corinth was engaged in a perverse, sexual, immoral act. And he's displeased that they were doing nothing about it. So much. I mean, it's what the American church would do, right? We do the same thing today. And he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out your fellowship, put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Shouldn't you have done that? He says, listen, Paul says, I have already passed judgment on the one who did this. Jesus said, do not judge. Paul said, I've already passed judgment. Got a problem here. He continues in verse 5. He said, hand this man over to Satan. What? Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So not only is the church commanded to engage in discipline, commanded to, but we see the very act itself is loving. Why? You, you, you discern this properly, you adjudicate it properly, you cast the person out so that their sin is destroyed and they're saved on the day that Christ returns. And that means what? That means if a church does not engage in discipline, formal or informal, it is a hateful church. If it is a loving act for a church to engage in discipline, then it is a hateful act for the church to neglect it. And we have to say that many churches today are hateful in their treatment of those who are engaged in embroiled in sin. Because we are, we are a judgment-free church today. And I say we, I say we collective. In fact, Paul concludes his argument in 1 Corinthians 5 with this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church. He says, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those on the outside. He says, expel the wicked man from among you. Expel the wicked man from among you. That requires judgment. That requires discipline. As many of you know, a year and a half ago, we were compelled to engage Informal church discipline as a church, where it went all the way through the stages of Matthew 18 till that final time. Many of you also know, as I shared during a church council meeting, that I sought the counsel of many and talked to nine separate pastors about the current situation that was taking place, and I wanted to hear what they thought in terms of the scriptural approach. There was universal agreement on the approach for church discipline. But two of those pastors, two of those pastors said to me, The right thing to do is church discipline, but I would never do it. Two of the nine. And of course, being the curious story, I said, what do you mean you wouldn't do it? Why wouldn't you do it? And this is what they both said. Too many people will not understand. Too many people will think that the leadership is being judgmental and harsh, and they will leave. As grievous as those statements are, and they were, they burned my ears, they were right. In the response. They were right in the response. Many who had been churching here for years disagreed with the biblical discipline. They disagreed with this judgment. In part, some said, because we're not supposed to judge. They took Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and they misinterpreted it in this context. And they left. Ironically, ironically, many left. Because they rendered a judgment against the leadership of this church, namely me, and justified their departure on that. Which is terribly interesting because they had to make a judgment in order to do that. In other words, you can't not judge, right? They were making a judgment about it not being a judgment-free area. And they fell on their own sword. So where does this leave us? I mean, what do we do with this? I got Jesus saying, do not judge. And I have Paul saying, I've already judged this man already. 
Well, how do we reconcile this? If the Bible commands individual believers to judge, which it does, and it commands the church to judge, it does, then how are we to reconcile this within the kingdom? Because we're talking about kingdom life here. How does this play itself out? What did Jesus mean when he said, judge not? Point number three, a condemning spirit. Krino. Krino in the Greek also means condemnation. Okay? So when Jesus is saying, do not judge, you can also render that, do not condemn. Now, condemning is different than judging and different than discerning. Discernment and judgment may be required for condemnation, but condemnation is a whole other animal, which I want to look at now. Condemnation. I, I was trying to think of a really good way to tell you this, and this is what I came up with. It's the pronouncing of a final judgment on someone. It's a final judgment where you are rendering someone, either in your mind or by your actions, done, condemned, dead, finished. Defaming people, condemning them publicly, or maybe just in the courtroom of our own minds. There's no better illustration, in my opinion, than Luke chapter 18, where this is actually played out in a story. And since you're story people and I love stories, I'm going to tell you the story. Luke chapter 18. Jesus said, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. And that's not a good way to start your prayer, by the way. He prayed about himself and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And then he looked over and said, Or even like this tax collector. And then, he says, I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable is brilliant. It's brilliant. For several reasons, I want to show you a few. It's brilliant because it reveals the do not judge type of condemnation that Christ is talking about here in Matthew 7, verse 1. He's not calling followers, his followers, to be amorphous blobs who do not discern or make right judgment about right and wrong or behavior outside or inside the church. He's not saying, walk down the streets of San Francisco blissfully and look for the people in sweater vests and coats singing hymns. He is saying, stop condemning people. Stop putting people down in order to lift yourself up. Stop it. He's saying, that's not... The kingdom way, it's not the kingdom life, it's not what you've been called to do. That is a direct command from the lips of Christ. Stop condemning. I am so guilty of this. I am so guilty of having my judgment and discernment move into condemnation. It's been a tough week of the word going, all right, pastor. Let's see how we're doing. Where you condemn people, either with your words, or, I mean, the worst part right, is you condemn someone with your actions, which ultimately leads to what? Condemn- you kill the person. It leads to their death, their physical death. If that condemnation is fully worked out. But that's not usually what we see. Most of us have not physically killed someone. And if you have, don't raise your hand. We'll talk afterwards. But we have all killed people in our minds we have all condemned in the courtroom of our mind and we've done it in such a way that we justify it with biblical judgment I'm just judging I'm just discerning right from wrong I'm not condemning anybody we go to great lengths to put on the black robe and to sit in the chair we in our minds we call witnesses we cast a verdict And we sentence people to death. We do this in moments. We do this over a period of time. But we do it. 
And then we find those who are like-minded. And we say, here's the judicial process that I went through. And we get people to agree with us saying, yes, that person is like that. And they should die. And we gather people to condemn with us. Years ago, there was a, a gentleman who professed Christ. And I noticed early on uh, in his behavior that he would readily uh, judge someone. Quickly. And his, he was surrounded by people in his life that were either approved or they were condemned. And those who were approved, uh, he was very kind to, very gracious to. He professed Christ and, and would serve. Those that he approved. Those that he condemned. It was a whole different approach. Would not talk to them. If they said hello, it might be a hi, but it was a cursory hello. His actions were indicative of the condemnation. And it was over usually a variety of things. A theological issue, minor. um, Holidays that were celebrated. Catchphrases that people would use. Length of hair. Musical preference. And it went on and on and on and on and on. Now, when confronted on this, he knew his Bible well enough to say, I'm not condemning, I'm merely stating the facts, I'm merely discerning. It is such a fine line. Be very careful. You say, I'm, I'm just judging, I'm not condemning. I'm just discerning, I'm not executing. Do you know that line? Because we cross it all the time. You must judge. But you must not condemn. You must discern. But you must not, must not put to death. That's what Christ is saying. But not only do we see the Pharisee condemning. We see the motivation behind it. Which to me is so extraordinary. The Pharisee in the parable. Has not experienced the gospel of grace. He hasn't. He hasn't come. Through the cross of Christ. He's still stuck. Look at the very beginning. Well, you don't have it, but if you have Luke 18 open, he was justified by his works. He thought to himself, as many still do today, if I'm good, God will be good to me. If I'm bad, God won't be so good to me. And he was confident in his own righteousness. And so Christ gives us this dialogue. He gives us a courtroom dialogue that we do in our minds all the time. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself, said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Did you hear what he said? He said, I'm not like these guys. I'm better. I'm much better. And how does he do this? He compares himself not to God, not to the Ten Commandments. He compares himself to fallen man. Now, anybody, anybody can find someone else, I would imagine, that you think in your mind is lower than you. I mean, if we set up a false standard, we're gonna, you're all, you're all, people you work with, people in your neighborhood, the neighbor who plays their music till 2 a.m., you can find that person, right? If your standard of judgment is low, you're going to find that. And this is exactly what this Pharisee is doing. Not only does he say, look, I'm okay based upon the robber and the adulterer and this pathetic tax collector who's standing way back here. I'm much better, but here's what I do. Here are the good things. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. What's the Pharisee's issue? What is it? He's still stuck in his own self-righteousness. Right? He has to. If he doesn't have the righteousness of Christ through the gospel of grace, then he has to exalt himself. He must. He must in his mind and the minds of those who are important to him and maybe even God, he must convince people that he's okay, that he is good enough, that he can live this life in eternity with God the Father because he's done enough. He's given fasting twice a week and he's given a tenth of all that he has. He needs to exalt himself. Apart from the glory that comes from God, apart from the crown of righteousness that only Christ will put on your head, apart from that, we will always be in that starving state and need to bring ourselves glory. And so what do we do? I mean, what do we do? The easiest way to bring glory to yourself is to find others who, in your mind, are less glorified. 
The easiest way to bring glory to yourself is to make a list of all the good things that you do. And then you meditate on those. And you know that you've really hit that outer boundary of condemnation through self-exaltation when you become hypercritical. A hypercritical person is someone who not only condemns someone, but they rejoice when they mess up. You want to know that you've crossed that line? How many of you have ever rejoiced in the catastrophe of someone else? You have condemned them, and you've gone to that extreme place. Was it last year, two years ago? I'm not a big golf fan, but it, it captivated my attention. When Tiger Woods went down, Tiger Woods caught in multiple adulterous affairs, the, there were so many who hated Tiger Woods because he was so good. Right? I mean, when you're really good at something, you're going to have people who love you and people who hate you. Well, those who hate you are going to condemn you because you're good. When he fell, when it came out that he was engaged in these, these extramarital affairs for a prolonged period of time, it was amazing to me to see the joy and the glee in people's tones of voice. There, was, there were a couple sports commentators that just, it was like, oh. They were, it was like they were excited and giddy that this man was engaged in this destruction. Why? He had been condemned. And when you condemn someone and become hypercritical, you'll rejoice in their failure. How many at work have done this? Maybe to you. Maybe you've done this to someone at work. Someone who's successful, someone who's rising the corporate ladder, someone who gets everything right, does everything right, the boss loves them. And you're like, oh, I hate that person. Why? They're so good. Oh, that's great. That's a kingdom principle. I hate them because they're so good. And then they screw up. And you rejoice. And you may never say it. You may never communicate to a single person. But in your heart you're thinking. "Mm, Yeah. It's about time. They had that coming. Extreme condemnation. When we do this. When we become hypercritical. Rejoicing over others failures. We're not making judgments. About what they say. We're not making judgments about how they behaved. We're condemning the person as a whole. We're killing them. We're destroying them. This is not something the Bible calls us to. It forbids us from it for a primary reason. And I'll give it to you now. It's because God is the one who is given the responsibility of condemning. Only God. Only God has the power and the authority to condemn anyone. And that means that when you engage in condemnation, when you judge, not discerning, not a moral law, but when you judge someone by putting them to death, you are stepping onto the throne. You're saying, I have the power. You are claiming to be God. It's so foolish. It's foolish for lots of reasons. Listen, here's two for you. The condemning of another person by a believer has no place in God's kingdom the Bible says in John 3.18 whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already so the moment the believer condemns the non-believer God's going duh I mean great exercise they already stand condemned so how utterly foolish is it for you to condemn in your mind or with your words or by your actions the unsaved, the unrepentant because they already stand condemned so you're doubly condemning them You're going to triple condemn them? It doesn't make any sense. What is the response for the believer to the non-believer? It's not condemnation. It should be reconciliation. Right? I mean, our driving force should be to see the unsaved, who the Bible says already stands condemned before God, as objects of evangelism. Now, I'm not going to segue on this. I said I wouldn't, and so I won't. But I'm going to do five seconds. The church is in a perpetual state of condemning the world. I hear more from believers in their condemnation of the unsaved than I hear about the the right judgment of the saved of their own lives. Why? The, the, The world is already judged by God. Those who reject Christ. I mean, I don't know why we even talk about it. And yet we do. If they were objects of evangelism, we would see them as we once were. Right? 
I mean, you'd see the unsaved as condemned, Bible says so, and how you once were condemned, but you're no longer condemned because of Christ. And that right vision would not take you out pointing the finger saying, die, die, die. You'd go out with the gospel of grace and with the good news, and you would desire them to know Christ. In fact, you do everything to get them to repent and believe as you do. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation, not condemnation, reconciliation. And then he, he, he adds in verse 20, listen, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, you, you can't use a stronger word, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do what? Flee the condemnation that awaits you, because you stand condemned. That's the right biblical church response to the unredeemed world. That's the right response. Not condemnation, reconciliation with the message we implore you be reconciled before it's too late. So it's foolish to condemn those outside the church. And I will tell you, it's foolish to condemn those inside the church. Romans chapter 8, Paul said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, someone who really knows Christ cannot ever be condemned. They've been set free from the law of sin and death. So what does that mean? If you condemn people outside the church, you're a fool because they're already condemned. If you condemn people inside the church, you're a fool because they can never be condemned again. In other words, there's no one at any time who should ever be and can be condemned by you or by me or by the church. Foolish. It's foolishness. But even more grievous is what it says about our heart. I mean, it's utterly foolish to condemn anybody outside in the church because they're already condemned or they cannot be condemned again. But what does it say about you? What does it say about me when I condemn someone? What does it say? How does the soul, saved by grace, born again by Christ, once standing condemned but now alive, how does that person then turn and condemn someone else? How do you do that? How do we do that? How quickly we forget where we once stood how quickly we forget the magnitude of the sacrifice that was necessary to bring us out of that state of condemnation into life. How quickly we forget Paul saying, Romans 14, 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. That, that's a verse you can't read and go, oh yeah, no, that's a verse you go, who are you, who am I to condemn anybody? People stand or fall according to God's judgment, not ours, certainly not mine. So, how do you stop this? As probably one of the most condemning people in this room, I said, how do I stop this? It's foolish to judge. It's a wrong heart to judge. Jesus commands me not to judge in a condemning fashion. How do I stop it? How do I not wake up on a daily basis and continuously condemn people? How do I see the lost in need of a message of reconciliation rather than condemnation in my own heart and mind? How do I see God's children as people who have been saved by grace and can never be condemned again? How do I do it? The last point, it's biblical grace. For me, this is probably one of the hardest things I do. It's condemning. I mean, I thought about, I thought about the besetting sins in my life. This is going to be one of the hardest things I fight against. It's condemning people. And, you know, I'll talk to people I love and they go, Oh, no, you're just judging people accurately. You're just, no, I'm condemning them. I'm killing them. I'm sentencing them to death. I'm sitting on the throne as if I were God. This is difficult. So, first of all, it's not an easy process to overcome a spirit of condemnation. In fact, what I've noticed, and maybe you can attest to this as well, the longer you're in the church, and the longer you engage in the disciplines of the faith, and the more righteous you become, at least in your own mind, the more condemning the spirit grows. 
You say, what are you telling us, not to go to church or read our Bibles or pray? No, of course not. But it's breeding ground for the condemning spirit. So we must be aware of that. It's fertile ground. I've been in church all my life. I've read my Bible every day. I ha- you know, it's fertile ground for you ascending by causing people to descend. The source of the problem is found in the same parable. The source of the problem isn't other people. Right? I mean, we always think, if I could just get these people out of my life. It's not other people. It's, it, the source of the problem is it's us. It's in us. It's not others. It's ourselves. The resolution. It's your complete and total satisfaction in the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, well, here we go again. No, it is. The solution is the glory and satisfaction in Christ. Let me show you. In the parable, go back to the parable if you're in Luke 18. The Pharisee put his confidence and his hope in his own righteousness and his own goodness, right? This is what the Pharisee did. The tax collector. The Pharisee lifted himself up by putting others down. He condemned people. The tax collector. The tax collector. This is the evil man in Jewish society, right? I mean, he was, he was uh, ostracized by the Jews. He was a sympathizer to Rome. He used the Roman oppression to take advantage of his own people by getting some money. I mean, he made a buck off the Roman oppression. The tax collector was hated by both the Romans and the Jews. I mean, this guy was the outcast. Did you see how he approached God? The tax collector stood at a distance. The tax collector wouldn't even come up to where the Pharisee felt he had the right to pray. The tax collector, it says, he would not even look up to heaven. So overwhelmed with his sin, so aware of his total depravity before Holy God, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. It said he beat his breast. You say, well, that's weird. That was a sign of extreme mourning, extreme grief before a holy God of his mess. And then he said this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he said. Such a beautiful prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner, O God. And then Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that this man, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. He stands at a distance. He won't lift up his face. He beats his breast and he says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And then what does God do? God says, you're justified. What is going on? Holy God, perfect judge, but he didn't judge. But he did judge. What happened? What is going on here? If this God is holy, then he has to judge. If this God is truly a righteous, good, just God, then he must exact justice. And yet this man, when he said, God have mercy on me, received mercy. He received forgiveness. What happened? I mean, you want the full weight of the gospel narrative to come down on your spirit of condemnation? This is it. What happened? As soon as he asked for mercy, as soon as he came before God and said, I'm a sinner and I'm stuck and I cannot get out of this, have mercy on me. Mercy and forgiveness was granted from the throne of authority, from the one who had the right to condemn and justice was exacted at the exact same time. So I don't see that in this parable. It's here because the parable is tied into the cross of Christ. How so? The moment that that man was forgiven of his sins, the punishment for his sins were placed upon Christ. So that man received mercy and forgiveness and the glory that comes from Christ. And Christ was punished, remaining Uh, keeping God completely just and completely holy. Jesus Christ was cast out of the presence of his father and received the just punishment of the tax collector. So the tax collector could go home justified. But not only did Christ clear the debt, the part that we always miss, even in the evangelical church, Christ 
said to the tax officer, here's my glory. Here's my honor. Here's the grace that's sufficient to overcome your, your grace-depleted heart. Here it is. Here's all the majesty and all the power that comes from the throne. And if that tax collector lived this out, then it would crush, it would utterly crush his spirit of condemnation. You cannot gaze upon a crucified Savior with a condemning spirit. You can't do it. You cannot look upon the God who sent his son to take your sins upon the cross and then go, yeah, and I'm going to condemn X, Y, and Z. You can't do it. And so this tax collector stood there, asked for mercy, received mercy through the cross. Christ got the justice, and God the Father is glorified in the midst of it all. So what's necessary for us? What's necessary for us? It's not this sermon. If you have a condemning spirit before you came into this service, you will not leave here with your condemning spirit overturned. It's not this. It's not a sermon. It's not prayers. It's not a few songs. If you struggle with a condemning spirit, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit harnessed every single day through prayer, through his word, through brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's every day. And the degree to which you pull back from that power which Christ brings through the Spirit of God, through his prayer, through prayer and through scripture and through fellowship, you pull back from that, you will become a condemning person. You will condemn. Subtly at first, maybe, maybe not. But that will be the end. You will condemn. Every single day. Jesus Christ is not saying to his children, do not judge, do not be undiscerning people. He's saying, stop condemning. He's saying, stop condemning. It was imperative that I spent the entire sermon on this for two fundamental reasons. One, we have misinterpreted this verse grossly for decades. And number two, we're condemning people. We really are. I hear things that sting my ears from my mouth and from yours. We condemn. It's foolish to condemn. That's God's place. Be like the tax collector. Humble yourself before God every single day. See the sacrifice. See the payment. And you will not condemn others. You will not be able to condemn others. It's not your calling and it's not your purpose. It wasn't even the purpose of Christ when he came the first time. I'll read to you from John 3 and we'll close. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen. For God did not send his Son into the world to... Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more simple than that. Christ came with a message of reconciliation. We are to go with a message of reconciliation. Let's stop condemning. Let's condemn the spirit of condemnation in our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would forgive me, forgive my brothers and sisters for condemning saved and unsaved alike. For having a spirit of condemnation, Lord, that is not honoring to you and certainly is not fit for this kingdom you're calling us to live. Father, we recognize that you are a holy God and you and no one else has the right and the power to condemn. We recognize also, Father, that you have saved us from the state of condemnation that we were in before Christ. That you, by your great work through your Son, set us free from the chains of sin and death. And so we, your children, can say there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ. And what a beautiful statement. What a radical joy to fill the heart and mind of the believer. 
No more condemnation. And if that's true, Lord, if you have set us free, then why do we still bind other people? Set us free from that as well. From the foolishness of destroying others at our own, for our own glory. As a church, Lord, give us wisdom to understand this verse correctly. In the context in which it was spoken, in the context of your whole Bible. And by your grace and mercy, Lord, destroy the spirit of condemnation that still lives in our hearts. I pray these things by the power of Christ in his holy name. Amen.